Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. My name is Paul Hindle, editor at Fintech Futures, and for this episode, we're joined by Simon Boonen, Fintech Partnership Lead at ING. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Paul. It's a great pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, just to get started, then, would you like to quickly let us know a bit more about yourself and, and what you're up to at ING then? Awesome. So as you already said in the brief introduction, indeed, my name is Simon Boonen. I work as a fintech lead at ING, and I'm part of ING's uh, group strategy and innovation department. I've been working uh, with ING now for over four years, heading to four and a half years. Always been active in fintech uh, land for ING as a fintech consultant and as a fintech lead. And in that role, I'm really trying to connect ING to the ecosystem of fintech startups and scale-ups, wherever our business uh, leaders are in need of such propositions. And more recently, uh, now as part of group strategy and innovation, we're applying a slightly more focused approach, but still all things fintech. Excellent. Great, great. Now, as I mentioned, it's great to have you here. And with that background that you've got on the show this week, we'll be taking a look at the, the growing need for collaboration between banks and fintechs in what is a rapidly evolving financial services arena and how big banks such as ING kind of approach partnerships, innovation and digital transformation as a whole. And we'll be diving into this topic over the show, covering aspects such as uh, what banks look out for in their partners, some of the key areas of focus right now for banks and when it comes to partnerships as well. All that's to come a little bit later, but as always, to get us started is our News in Numbers segment. So this is where our guest has gone out and found a new story featuring an interesting number to discuss. So Simon, what have you brought along for us today? I found a very interesting number, Paul, uh, which is 1.5 trillion. And that number in itself won't tell you much, but it actually comes from a recently released report that was published by BCG together with uh, QED Investors. And the number refers to what they forecast to be the annual fintech revenues expected to be reached by 2030, which is quite a significant uptake from where we are currently, I would say, especially since in this day and age, we seem to be in a bit of a fintech winter or a fintech downturn, however we want to call it. For the past 12 to 18 months, we've seen some challenges in funding happening. Uh, We've seen valuations being slashed. Some have cut in half, some have even decreased further. So... It's a bit of a number also to to bring a bit of brightness to to the future, if you will, uh, looking from a structural growth perspective in fintech. And I really like to see that in that respect. So it's also really the marking of a new phase in fintech, so it seems, right? So we've seen the the industry grow from something non-existent a few decades ago to a significant and, and sizable industry already. We've seen over 500 billion in fintech funding uh, flowing into the industry in the past decade. And I think indeed, giving these kind of predictions also revenue-wise really show that the industry is maturing in that respect and that it's being taken seriously across the board. Yeah. And so, I mean, to put that into context as well, so that $1.5 trillion figure is sixfold growth from the $245 billion figure that we're at at the moment. So huge amount of growth expected in in whatever is a relatively short time period of, of seven years. Do you think that's an optimistic target, given the you know the list of facts that you listed there, or are you equally as optimistic in the growth that you're seeing at the moment in the sector that we that we can hit that target? It definitely sounds like an optimistic outlook. Obviously, it's always to be seen with these kinds of numbers for a number of years into the future whether they actually will play out and will work out. Uh, but at the same time, we've seen some hyper growth happening, or at least also from an investment perspective, if we look at what has happened between 20, roughly 18 and 2021 or the end of 2021, we've seen some massive growth 
part of that may have been fostered also by in between digitization and acceleration of digital due to COVID, due to a pandemic. So that can definitely have played a role. And we might now see the, the kind of balancing act over responding the other way around, also driven by some different market uh, circumstances and environment. But things seem to be looking bright, at least that is one. And even if not, this number is not met in full or in part, uh, or at least it will be met in part, the kind of growth promise seems to be still there. And we'll need to figure ways as to how to make this number. But as said, indeed, with hyper growth, things can really move very quickly. And the report suggested that Asia Pacific was poised to, to outpace the US as well and become the, the world's top fintech market by, by 2030. What's your take on that? I mean, I know you've got your finger on the pulse of the kind of the fintech sector, but is that there's a lot of activity kind of in the in the APAC recent at the moment, you know. So. Yeah. I think for one, there is definitely already a lot happening in, in fintech in the in the APAC region, right? We've also seen the big players coming from China. We've seen the super apps emerging also specifically from this region. And we also see that, especially in the APEC region, there is a lot of people who may still be unbanked or underbanked. There's some debate eventually about how to define that appropriately, right? Might also mean that there is a lot of cash still going on. But on the back of that, the amount of people living in the area is simply massive. So uh, with wealth increasing, with growth and maturity of, of the continent increasing in, in Asia for one, but also with the region at large, it seems no more than logical that uh, this region is really uh, poised for growth. And I think eventually the same holds true for uh, Latin America and for Africa as well. Those numbers seem to be at least in absolute numbers a, li uh, a little bit less impressive. But if you look into the growth, there is really a lot of growth potential. And if you then offset that against the uh, predicted growth rates for the United States and for Europe, which are 4x and 5.5x, I say by heart, that's slightly less, but still significant, I would argue. You can still do 4x in seven or eight years time. And there is still enough room for growth and, ma and maturing solutions. Excellent. And the report also suggests as well the B2B market potentially going to be one of the key drivers as well for growth in the space. Is that something that you've particularly been looking into as well to kind of tap into? I think this is something that we've trend-wise already been seeing in the past year or a year and a half eventually. We've seen a boom in uh, consumer-facing and consumer-oriented fintech solutions, especially also throughout the pandemic. But on the back of that, we've also learned and I think many companies have also learned that eventually consumer acquisition might be a costly thing to do. The question is whether you can make a business model truly work versus uh, if you're serving a niche market, is that enough to, to survive in? Or would you also need to expand your portfolio, expand your activities to, to get to a broader base? Whereas in, in business to business, there is definitely a lot of potential, a lot of opportunity. And that is what seems to come at play now. And I think there will be direct business to business opportunities also because SME segment is particularly interesting segment to be served. And that is where already many fintechs have, have jumped on, I would argue. So I would definitely imagine that there will be more growth, more opportunities as this continues to mature. And on the back of that, there is also a B2B to X kind of play eventually to be made, which you could consider to be B2B. And I think we might touch upon that later as well. Developments in the area of embedded finance, but also banking as a service might well play into this. So we see boundaries blurring eventually across industries. We might also see financial services and, and fintechs playing for that across different industries, uh, bringing neat, seamless solutions in the business environment or in the business to consumer environment eventually, but first and foremost operating as a B2B company.
I guess this moves us quite nicely into the topic of the, the conversation today. Um, with the fintech arena kind of growing so much in, in terms of the revenue, how much does this kind of highlight the importance of, of banks embracing fintechs and, and partnerships and remaining agile with their digital transformation? It's a very good question, Paul. And uh, we see a lot of movement that has happened so far. I think the financial industry at large, obviously, indeed, has already gone through and is still going through massive transformations. There's enormous focus on the one side, digitalization, making sure indeed solutions get up to par. Uh, and on the back of that, there is also really a need for a personal uh, service, personal touch points, uh, because there is also still a lot of trust involved in the industry. So from an ING perspective, at least, and we've always seen and said that we really believe in the collaboration between banks and fintechs. And we've already been working with fintechs for a number of years and trying to, to bring partnerships, establish partnerships together. And this is also the kind of proof that it, it really can work for both parties involved, the bank and the fintech, but above all, also really for our customers, because in the end, that is what we're aiming for, really trying to serve our customers better. And then if you want to make it successful, right, from my perspective, the key point to, to consider is really to try and solve customer problems, right? So that is where it all starts. And that is then also the place in the moment, if you have that kind of customer problem or that customer opportunity at hand, how can you find an appropriate solution? And historically, banks may have been building a lot of solutions out by themselves, but given the pace of change in the world and also the, in the industry specifically, building everything by yourself may still be convenient for some players. But for many, the pace of change might be too high, and hence it could be very worthwhile to also consider not just building everything yourself, but really finding meaningful partnerships, especially if there is proper solutions out there in the market available and open for collaboration. Great. So, I mean, on that point, what is it in particular that you look out for then when you're scouting or speaking with potential partners? A great many number of things to consider in order to try and establish a partnership, right? So I could go <laughs> for a few hours, but that might make this podcast a little bit lengthy, yet uh, trying to, to, to bring some brief points, right? First and foremost, as I said, we're really looking into what is the kind of uh, customer pain point, customer problem or customer opportunity we try and solve. And what is key to that on the other side is also that this is something that we really prioritize as an organization. So we really are looking for senior leadership commitment on the inside of the organization to go with that. And as that can change, it's key to really also keep close with senior leadership, get to these points and make sure we have them close with us and reconfirm time and time again, we're still after the right kind of challenge. If we then look for partners, uh, typically uh, we apply the desirability, feasibility and viability perspectives or lenses, if you will, to, to try and find if we can also work together. Desirability is really all about making sure that also the customer, the end customer, likes the solution that we're after. And in this case, the customer could be indeed an actual customer of ING, but might also in some occasions be our own colleagues or employees uh, who are to use a solution. Feasibility may, means really diving deeper into can things work from a technical perspective? So how would it look from an integration perspective? What do we need to do to really make it happen from a technology point of view? And then viability also means that we really need to look into the business case, into commercials, and to make sure that everything around it is, is properly set and orchestrated, if you will, to make a partnership also work. We try and do this by typically testing early stage a number of key critical assumptions uh, that we try and validate in a small scale. If that works, this is also then really moving along and, and taking a step-by-step -step approach to go to a next stage and make it a little bit bigger. So what you'll typically see is that 
some of the aspects that we'll be assessing will be some kind of hard capability aspects, if you will. There might be specific business requirements or technical requirements or requirements also from supporting functions. As a bank with a license that we don't want to compromise, we also have to adhere to high standards as it comes to risk and legal and compliance amongst others. But next to that, there is also a bit of a cultural side, right? So beyond the hard aspects, it's also about really working together and collaborating. So it's not just indeed doing the hard stuff, doing the interviews, but you should also really find the appetite and the mode for collaboration together with the respective counterparty or counterparties with whom you're trying to together bring a solution to a client or to a customer. Excellent. And, and on that front, if there's any kind of fintechs listing in, what are some of the red flags that might cause you to turn away and things that they should be working on? In all honesty, Paul, uh, red flags can emerge eventually across all of those uh, variables, right? So it can be on the hard capabilities. As I said, uh, we have really high standards that we have to adhere to as it comes to risk and legal, but also com- uh, procurement and technology. So typically, indeed, our colleagues in those departments will have a list of key critical items and requirements that must be met in order to collaborate. And that can be about uh, data protection, that can be about organizational governance, that can be about specific even legal or procurement clauses in a contract that might be all across. What we typically experience is that by really applying those desirability, feasibility, and viability lenses, step-by-step, we will be assessing indeed where and when red flags might emerge, how critical they are, or how critical challenges are, whether they can be overcome, or whether indeed it, it makes sense to simply stop an exploration because there are some points that cannot be overcome. And this is our side, obviously, but it's always a joint and together game, right? So it's also appreciating and understanding the other side's perspective to make sure that after all, if you want to do a partnership, it needs to come from both ends. And then in many cases, our requirements or our demands might be leading in a way, but in the end, it should always be good also for all parties involved. So ING has a strong history of building its own tech solutions and then spinning them out. Um, is this something that the bank is continuing with running alongside the partnership work, and especially given the recent changes with, with ING Neo being combined with the, the corporate strategy team? What we see is that innovation still remains a very important element of our strategy. It's together with our people and our culture. Uh, innovation is really the kind of orange trap that is connecting all of our strategic priorities. And in that respect, we do definitely continue to look after how we can improve, how we can innovate, and how we can make it better. Also really closely tying to the overall company's objectives and vision. So we really want to try and make a difference for our customers. And we try to do that by providing a superior customer experience. And in order to do so, we really see indeed the need for innovation, really the need to move that needle. What we have changed in that perspective is really that we've brought a lot of the innovation efforts also closer now. So they have really moved closer to business uh, where they can be more impactful, hopefully also being closer with customers and making sure indeed that we can learn from our customers, we can learn from those business priorities. And in that respect, if need be, create the right solutions for our customers. But again, also here, right, the building versus the partnering, it always needs to start with the challenge at hand that you're trying to tackle or the opportunity you try to pursue. So what we see is that that is a kind of balance. If we see there is readily available solutions available in the market, we might be partnering. But at the same time, uh, we've also come across instances where this is not the case. And in that case, it might have been a logical thing to really start building our own solutions. And that is what we've indeed done in numerous occasions in the past. And I would definitely not rule out this will also continue to happen going forward. 
Excellent. And uh, so, I mean, going back to the intro, one of the things that you mentioned as well was embedded finance and, and banking as a service. Um, this, I know, is one of the areas that you've got a particular focus on as well. What opportunities would you say exist there for both banks and other businesses? And what kind of inroads has ING in particular been looking to make in the space? It's quite a big one, I would say, Paul, to, to break down indeed all the opportunities in embedded finance and banking as a service. It's also really an area that's, that is emerging. So, a lot of the things might not be known in full just yet or might be emerging still along the ways. And then looking back at it in a few years from now might, might sound silly for now, right? But let me give a shot of trying to break it down. So first and foremost, we oftentimes combine the terminology of embedded finance and banking as a service quite closely together because in the end, I believe at least they are quite close together, right? So there is a twofold opportunity in my view. For one, that means that engaging in embedded finance means that you're trying to provide financial services more seamlessly in a customer journey, which is likely someone else's customer journey. And the word embedded might even be the kind of technical financial crowd insider terminology, if you will. And we might even go and refer on this terminology in a few years from now more about invisible finance. At least that's something I could imagine. Also thinking about as an example, right, how, uh, for instance, Uber has really made the whole payment part of their journeys almost as seamless or invisible. So I wouldn't even be surprised if at some point in time for specific financial services that we now call embedded, we might rephrase or toss them uh, to become invisible finance solutions or journey. So that is one. Then on the other end, if we think about banking as a service, this implies providing services directly or indirectly. And it can be banking capabilities, it can be a specific capability, or it can be a range of capabilities to someone else. And that someone else that might be a non-financial institution, I'll think about a bigger corporation or maybe even a smaller, medium-sized business. It might also be a fintech who might not have specific capabilities by themselves, but who might be in need of those specific capabilities. But it could also perhaps be another financial institution, right? Even if you have the licensing in place, you might not have all the capabilities yourself as a financial institution. I think then banks may provide such capabilities directly or indirectly. So directly would really mean eh, connecting directly with a fintech, connecting directly with another non-financial brand to make something happen. And that is what we are already seeing in some occasions, thinking amongst others also the collaboration, say, between Goldman and, and Apple, where the bank is directly working together with, with another big brand. Uh, but it could also happen indirectly, right, by an aggregator. And I think there is a number of especially fintechs in the market who are taking on that role as an aggregator currently. What we then see is that the way of doing this, right, it could help to provide an enriched capability to someone else, really capability as a service. So it might not be a full banking suite as such, but it could also be a capability. And whether it's a product capability or a service capability or a supporting capability, we can ma maybe even leave that in the middle. But it could also be that kind of a fuller suite, which then could really turn into a banking as a service proposition and need if you have enough capabilities that you can bundle together. And the big advantage for financial institutions in this way, obviously, would be indeed that they can potentially generate uh, additional volumes by servicing not just their direct clients in the way they've always done, but also need provide those capabilities and get more volumes in by providing services towards others. So then what are we doing as ING already in this space, right? Because I think that was the latter part also of your question. We have some examples already readily available. So we're already working with some corporates together. An example of using an embedded payment request that we have set up together with one of the big Dutch grocery stores. We have an embedded lending proposition launched in the German market together with Amazon, 
We actually acquired a fintech to make use of their capabilities to provide this kind of embedded lending capability to Amazon. But we're also trying to think about it the other way around, right? Because I'm now mainly talking about us pushing out and punching out capabilities towards others. But vice versa, we're also exploring how we can absorb specific capabilities from third parties towards ING to think about a bank as a platform. An example would be uh, our collaboration we have in the Dutch market together with GoGo, uh, which is a New Zealand-based, but I think they're also quite strong in London, fintech that is show, uh, that we're leveraging their capabilities and data to show our app users in the Dutch market the carbon footprint of the transactions they make. Excellent, excellent. I know it's just um, digital assets as well as another area of focus for you on the, on the partnership side. It seems like there's a mix between companies who are potentially pulling away from the digital asset side, whereas others who are kind of doubling down and, and really kind of like getting involved with the, the innovations there. But I mean, what type of innovations and use cases have you been on the lookout for there and have really caught your eye? Yeah, as ING at least said, at large, we're continuing to explore and, and, and try and deploy DLT solutions towards production. And it's quite a long trajectory, if you rightfully say. And some are opting out, but we still see the potential and the opportunity uh, that lies ahead of us. At this current stage, the initiatives we are currently running are being actually also led by the business, which means they are really getting embedded into the business day-to-day uh, -day operations and processes. So I think that that's key to notice. From a central team's perspective, right? so from the, the group innovation perspective, we are obviously also closely monitoring the developments in the DLT space or the digital asset space at large, I would say. And, and one of those developments we're uh, having a close eye on is, is asset tokenization. So we've already been working on asset tokenization bits and pieces in the past, uh, learning about it, exploring what we can do, small-scale experimentation, and we're really looking indeed how we can also continue on this path because we see simply there is a lot of physical assets that have the potential of, of becoming virtualized or tokenized in the space, if you will. That can be non-native digital assets, right? So the real tokenized assets, but what we also really see emerging eventually is that there might be native digital assets that really uh, also derive their use and value entirely from uh, representation on the blockchain. And so that obviously uh, refers to cryptocurrencies, which we are for now at least staying away from, but there is also other application areas that one can think of, think about uh, voting rights tokens, thinking about digital identity uh, representations and, and more in that line. And I know that open banking is another area of your um, expertise as well. A lot of activity in the UK in particular with open banking, um, banks and, and other players in the space have been clamoring for more regulation, more guidance in terms of the future of, of open banking in the country. And the JROC as well has recently released its uh, recommendations for the future of open banking as well. I know that ING was shutting down the open banking operations at, at YOLT as of late last year as well. Is this still an area that you see promising? Yes, absolutely. And open banking really continues to be a key priority for ING. So uh, taking a step back and looking at open banking, I think there is two flavors, right? So for one, there has been the regulatory flavor, and I think that's also the, the reference you're just making as it comes to updated uh, regulations. We see that happening in the UK. We also see the preparations happening in continental Europe with the European Commission indeed uh, expecting to come with some updates not too long from now about, for one, looking at the PSD2 uh, feedback to see indeed if there's something that might be called PSD3 or anything uh, alike, right? So for the non-UK listeners, this is the Revised Payment Service Directive, which is much in line with the open banking initiative that was published uh, around the same time in the UK. But beyond that also, it's heading towards open finance, seemingly at least. And I say that very carefully because we simply don't know yet what exactly is to come. 
but there are some regulatory indications indeed that we might go also beyond payments and payments data also towards other financial products. So thinking about open banking as a stepping stone, perhaps to open finance, open banking asset continues to be very important for ING. We've really set up an API program that also uh, embraces and promotes API thinking throughout the organization and business lines. And we have an open banking platform together with a developer portal, which really also helps us to give access uh, to our clients and partners to API services we have available, but then in a secure and scalable way in ING. And the other way around, the foundations. Uh, so we've really built this platform also on uh, good tech foundations. We can also leverage that the other way around, that if there is data capabilities that we would like to make use of that are available in the industry, that we can also leverage that same kind of technology for absorbing capabilities, information and data from the outside world into ING, to in that way also really make our own propositions better. And looking at ING in specific then, I mean, are there any collaborations that you've forged there that you're particularly happy about? And, and do you have anything in the pipeline as well that you could tell us about at the moment? I think I already made reference to some of those partnerships that we're particularly at, that, that we're happy about, uh, that we've also really established those because they're making an impact, referring again indeed to an Amazon collaboration, which is simply high key and, and really nice indeed for us as a bank to, to work with. Personally, I also really like the, the Kogo efforts that we, that we put in last year, uh, because it's really also working our way towards helping our own customers and, and clients understand indeed the carbon impact of any transactions they have. And on the back of that, looking beyond it, uh, we've done many, many partnerships and collaborations across the bank. Perhaps one more also to highlight from a corporate banking perspective, or maybe two actually in the same area, right? And also talking about DLT digital assets. We have two partnerships. Uh, one is with Comtour, the other one is with Comgo. And those both originated with the wave and emergence, if you will, of, of DLT technology. Uh, we've been an early part of the consortia that formed and shaped these companies to work on challenges in the trade finance domain. Comgo, in the meantime, has moved away from DLT technology, but really also saw the strength of the proposition come from uh, working together with different parties from across the industry. So that's not just financial institutions, but that comes broader, that comes with a number of big corporations, as well as also need a number of uh, shipping agencies for transport perspective. The other one where we see also the, the real benefits now, and that's really starting to ramp up is, is Contour. And they've also been quite on a journey, but we really see indeed the benefits of digitizing the letter of credit processes and in international trade with them. Uh, also, this solution is really uh, supported by broader number of players in the industry. So again, also here, it's in part the technology that has helped to make this play uh, come together, but it's definitely also indeed all the parties together putting an effort in making this happen. Also looking at, at partnerships, this is kind of the key important thing. Uh, it's really indeed bringing a group of people together to make something happen. So I wouldn't wish or want to take credit for, for any single partnership uh, in and by myself, because I really I realize and recognize the tremendous efforts that have gone in from a great variety of people from across our own organization, but in many occasions also even from people outside of our own organization. So that's actually what the whole partnership is all about, really bringing the people together, trying to together get it done and, and sort things out. Thanks again, Simon, for taking the time out to speak with me. To close out the podcast, we have our now infamous fintech jail. So this is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword or trend that you've seen or heard enough of that you want to cast into the jail 
or of course you can argue to free one of our previously incarcerated terms. So Simon, which buzzword do you want to either hand a sentence to or, or free from the jail today? I would actually like to release one of free one from the jail and that is uh, ESG. And I know on the one hand, it may sound a bit like a container term for uh, applied at a lot of stuff uh, at once. So not having heard the episode in which it, it was incarcerated, but I could imagine that that has been one of the reasons. Yet personally, I believe the topic as such is too big and too important for us as, as an industry, but beyond that, even for us as a society to have it imprisoned or incarcerated, right? So in order to work on it, I'd rather suggest to anyone listening indeed to find ways of making ESG meaningful rather than simply indeed tossing the term away. And ESG comes with many things. And I think it's emerging also here, right? What are we to do about it as a financial industry? How can we really improve? the situation in the world and that's not just environmental but also really from a social perspective and, and also to the extent where we can from a governance perspective how can we make it practical how can we make it meaningful and how can we indeed take small steps to a better world and i believe the way to do that is indeed to jointly explore to see indeed how standards emerge and to play an active role in that an active part in that and then especially also think about how we can make the environmental and the social part go hand in hand and together because we cannot do one without the other we need each other. And what I've seen in the past few years now, there's been a focus either on the environmental side or on the social side. I think about two years ago, there was a lot of emphasis on the environmental side. Then we got into an area last year, at least, and it's not over yet with, with high inflation and the cost of living crisis. So all of a sudden uh, the efforts go shifted from environmental towards social, hopefully underlining the point that the one cannot go without the other. We need both in order to truly make it work. Yes, I think you're right. I think when it was initially first uh, put into the jail, it was added in there because it was being overused, right? And people were just kind of like using ESG as almost like a buzzwordy term in itself and then forgetting the kind of importance of what was actually needed to be done for that. Um, Have you noticed that this term is being overused or do you think there's more clarity now from banks and financial institutions about their ESG kind of requirements and, and their responsibilities in this area? It's still being used a lot, so I fully agree to that. And uh, in order to to truly use it and to make sense and meaning of it, I think there is still a lot of work to be done. And I hope indeed that work actually will be put in. I know for one, we as a bank are really taking strides and efforts to to really make this happen. So it's a core part of the ING overall strategy, putting sustainability at the heart of everything we do. And that means a lot of challenges at current, a lot of also figuring and sorting out what to do and how to do a lot of stuff. But that is where we start. That might be to some extent a need. It's becoming a bit of a buzzword and, and a container, but at the same time, it's so important we simply cannot omit, I would say. feels a little bit as if indeed a few years ago, I think everybody was talking about AI and blockchain, and also that has been overhyped and hyped for a, for a whole while for right reasons. And then afterwards also it silenced down a bit, but also there we've seen things take time really to be built and to be explored, to be validated and to be used. And especially now, I think AI has made great strides recently. We didn't touch upon that any further, but uh, I think we're all seeing that now in the past six months or so. We've really gotten a user interface that is usable and that that really has helped us accelerate the already applications and use of of AI in that respect. Across the board, I mean, many, many people I've been talking to have at least in private been using ChatGPT as an example. Blockchain, similarly, it comes and goes in hypes, which typically seem to be connected to indeed prices of cryptocurrencies. But underneath, although some might be opting out, a lot is still continuing. A lot is still being developed. A lot is still being built. And it simply takes time to get there and go there. So the only thing indeed we can do is keep our heads down, continue to build, and hope indeed that the solutions that are coming from that will benefit. 
Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks, of course, to Simon for joining me. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at Fintech Futures, and of course, on LinkedIn. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service to get notified about future episodes. Thanks as well to Arama for editing this podcast. You can check them out at arama.tv. As always, thank you very much for your support. We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.